Welcome to Mind Tricks Radio, where we'll explore contemporary topics in psychology through interviewing creative and innovative thinkers in the field. I'm your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan. Thanks for tuning in. We're here today with Dr. Rochelle Scott to talk about the psychology of workplace burnout. Dr. Scott is a board-certified adult psychiatrist and serves as medical directory of psychiatry at Eden Health, where she leads the mental health team. She received her medical degree from Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston and completed residency in psychiatry at the Zucker Hillside Hospital in New York. Prior to joining Eden Health, she worked as a consulting psychiatrist with the Mental Health Service Corps, an initiative of Thrive NYC, and subsequently became the medical director. She has many years of experience treating adult psychiatric patients in a variety of inpatient and outpatient settings, but has been most passionate about providing holistic and integrated mental health care. Dr. Scott has contributed to pieces in Business Insider, NPR, Forbes, Employee Benefit News, and many other outlets. Rochelle, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you so much for having me today. Pleasure joining you. Yeah, great. This is a super important topic, this topic about work burnout. And I know as a clinician, I see many patients who come in to see me. Many of them come for the purpose of struggling with problems at work. Oftentimes, it probably falls within the realm of burnout, but they struggle. And if work isn't the primary reason why they come, oftentimes many patients are just struggling with issues and work is part of that. So work-related mental health is really important. And so I'm excited to talk with you a bit about this phenomenon and how we can see both as employers and employees, individuals who are suffering from that can maybe take a look at reasons for it and ways that they can deal with it. So thanks again. And I'm really excited about talking with you about this. Sure thing. I think uh, obviously mental health is having a moment, but I think particularly workplace mental health is really, um, I think, part of the national conversation, which is nice to see. So happy to be here talking a little bit more about it with you today. Yeah, for sure. So Rochelle, before we get started, I usually like to spend a little time with my guests getting to know them a bit better. And I'm wondering if you can tell us a bit more about your background, your road to becoming a psychiatrist, and then perhaps your interest in workplace mental health issues. Sure. So I would say I was one of those kids kind of growing up. I knew I wanted to be a doctor. I think medicine is sort of like a family business, I will say. There are oh. a lot of, I have a lot of family members who are in the medical field. And so that's certainly where my interest lied very early on, say eight or nine. But I never really knew what type of doctor I wanted to be. I think the first inkling of that was when I got into high school and I was introduced to an intro to psychology class and fell in love with it. I fell in love with the concepts and just sort of learning about personality structure and, you know, always sort of curious about why people do the things that they do and just how two people can react to an event, the same event very differently. And I Mm. think those were sort of my initial inklings. And I was always sort of that kid that was really quiet, but sort of like a fly on the wall, always just listening and kind of hearing people's stories and sort of hearing things when other people didn't even know I was listening. So I guess you could say like, for me, sort of the beginning habits and behaviors that I kind of had early on, but believe it or not, uh, you would think 
that even in college, I was a psychology major and I knew I wanted to go to medical school, that it would be a natural fit, that I would have just gotten into psychiatry. But that wasn't the case necessarily. I really thought early on I, I was going to go more into women's health and, and do more obstetrics and gynecology. And I was really interested in, in fertility. And, and, then I, and then I thought about dermatology. And, <laughs> and when I realized that about all of those different specialties, the part that I really enjoyed the most was just talking to people, getting their history and understanding what was the context that brought them in for help. So what were their symptoms? What were they experiencing? But really, how was it impacting their functioning? And once I really had that realization that that's primarily what I was interested in more so than anything else, that's when I finally said, okay, you know what? It's psychiatry. And that's how I wound up being a psychiatrist. So I look back on it and I'm like, how did you think you were going to do anything else? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it seems so clear to me now, but I would say the path wasn't as straightforward as, as one would imagine. Sure. And so are you the first psychiatrist in the family medical lineage? I am. I am. I would say I come from a culture where mental health is not really talked about. And there's there's a lot of stigma. I mean, I think there's stigma in American culture about mental health, but I, um, even in from my culture, um, my family's from Haiti. It wasn't it's not something that's openly talked about. And so mm. when I said I was going to become a psychiatrist, it was sort of met initially with concern and reserve and, you know, what does this mean? And I think over the many years that I've been practicing, I've seen a big turnaround, even in my family, where now it's sort of like, they call me because they think I could fix everything. So I'm like, that's <laughs> not true. <laughs> but it, it's good to sort of see that um, the conversation around mental health has really changed over the last 15 to 18 years um, that I've been practicing. Yeah, for sure. And that's a whole other conversation that would be really interesting to have about the cultural perceptions and conceptualizations of mental health and treatment. So maybe one day I'll, I'll hit you up for another conversation about that. Um, what, about, what about workplace mental health? How did you become interested in that topic? Yeah, so, you know, I've worked in a variety of settings over the years, more traditional, I would say, uh, mental health spaces. So inpatient services, outpatient, you know, community health clinics. And then I would say really in the last, I don't know, six years, I've been working in sort of what I would say more innovative spaces or just different spaces. And so the last two and a half years, I've been working with Eden Health, um, which is really looking to integrate physical health and mental health and really practice more of a collaborative care model. And I think because I was working closely with employers and different employer groups, sort of getting insight into how culture and how different employers, how how sort of their employees were dealing with some of the stress, um, workplace stress. And so really kind of started first with observations and just sort of like anecdotally hearing different stories. And then I think being immersed in Eden's culture and wanting to really make an impact and a difference there really sort of to, I think, digging a little bit, a bit deeper into it and, and really learning a little bit more about it. Um, and that's sort of how my interest in the workplace mental health came about. Great. Well, there's certainly a huge need, I would think, for employers to take mental health issues seriously as the happiness and well-being of the employees, I'm, I'm sure, greatly impacts the work they do uh, at the companies they work at or whatever their employer is. So that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk about burnout. So when, when people are talking about burnout, people are feeling burnt out. What is burnout exactly? Like, how do you conceptualize that when you explain it to somebody? 
so just to back up a little bit, I think it's interesting because a lot of mental health terms are both what diagnoses, but also everyday words that we use. And so yeah. I see that a lot when I say, hey, I'm depressed or I'm sad, you know, I'm depressed or I'm anxious, right? Those are like normal emotions, but then also have clinical diagnoses sometimes. And so I think sometimes there's a bit of an issue with language. And so we say burnt out all the time, right, to mean different things that we're, you know, we're just tired, we're exhausted. But when I'm talking to employers and employees about burnout, you know, it's really a syndrome, I would say constellation of symptoms that one experiences, that's really related to work, right? It's a workplace stress. um, And it's a continuous high level of stress that hasn't been able to be managed successfully. So I sort of think of it when the demands exceed the resources that someone has from a workplace environment. The other thing I would say is, you know, the difference for me about burnout is not something that happens overnight, right? This is something that's usually Mm -hmm. taking place over a period of time, more of a continuous exposure rather than a deadline that's kind of looming or a big project that's looming that you're working really hard towards. You get there, you successfully have the project or the event happens and you feel better afterwards, right? Burnout would be sort of like continuously working towards this deadline that never quite gets there. Mm-hmm. And it's so sort of this high level of stress that continues onward and onward and onward and sort of feeling like there isn't an end in sight. Yeah. So first off, I really like the way you describe burnout as it's it's sort of not a clinically recognized syndrome. It's not in the DSM or anything, but when pe- people talk about that in layperson's terms, but there are obviously emotional and psychological uh, factors that go along with it. And I, you mentioned anxiety and depression. I, I was wondering if you could just elaborate a bit on what kinds of clinical syndromes people might be experiencing that may be involved with burnout. Yeah, I mean, I think so. You're right. Burnout is not in the DSM, although the World Health Organization does have a diagnosis or ICD-11 code for for burnout, but they they recognize it as more of as an occupational stressor. Right. Mm -hmm. So really, the diagnosis can only be used in a work setting. But I think when people think about burnout, the two diagnoses that come to mind are anxiety and depression in the sense that you know, chronic levels of stress can lead to anxiety. And when I say anxiety, I mean anxiety as a clinical diagnosis. But we also know that untreated levels of anxiety or untreated levels of stress can also lead to a clinical depression. And so those tend to be the two diagnoses that are in there. And and you can see why There's, there's overlap in the symptoms, right? So, you know, when someone says that they're feeling burnt out, there's usually sort of this physical and mental exhaustion that goes along with it, right? And so not uncommon for people to say when they're depressed, they have low energy or they have a low mood or they can't concentrate, right? And those are things that are very similar in experience to someone who may be experiencing burnout, right? They're no longer able to focus on their work tasks. They're having difficulty missing deadlines. They're maybe not socializing with their peers or their team members in the same way that they were. And so there are similar sort of symptoms that accompany you know, that overlap, right? That sound very similar to when we're asking about uh, questions for depression. They may be people who are employees who are worried about a project or worried about work, but don't feel like they're as effective as they'd like to be. And that can also sound very similar to anxiety. 
so, you know, there, there is a lot of overlap. And so, you know, when you are a clinician and you're working with someone who talks about burnout, you certainly want to make sure that you are ruling out some of those other diagnoses because you just don't want to overlook that. But once you start asking the questions and you start realizing that it's really limited to work, that could be a sign that, hey, that maybe if this is just a workplace stressor more so than anything else, that, um, that this is when we really need to think about burnout. Right. And you mentioned some of the typical signs. I think you mentioned missed deadlines and what, what are yeah. the yeah, missed deadlines? What are some of the other signs that one might be looking out either as an employer or as an individual or a family member to know that one is feeling that way in regarding work? Yeah, I think missed deadlines is a good one, a good place to start. And, and what I, I tell employers that I'm working with or managers or HR folks is you know, in order to notice that someone's not doing well or not functioning to the same capacity, you kind of have to have an understanding of what their baseline is. And so that's what I always encourage managers to talk with their employees. Like when you meet with them on one-on-one, you know, just get a sense of who they are, what their baseline is, right? Or if you have a team member that you're working with or a family member or a loved one, you know, understanding what their baseline is, is going to be helpful to really be able to pick up when things start to change. And so like I said, it's not a, it's not an overnight thing, right? So there are some, some, some steps and some signs. And so we see that missing deadlines can often be the first indicator, especially if this is someone who, you know, generally has their work in on time, generally provides high quality work. And you're just starting to see like here and there missing some deadlines, not really communicating what's happening. And then I think what happens is, especially if you're part of a team is when you have missed deadlines, sometimes you see that has an impact on the relationship quality between team members, or, you know, if you're concerned about a loved one, but, you know, you just start hearing stories about their, you know, they're not quite getting along as well as with other team members as they had been, or maybe they're having a little bit more conflict with a boss or a manager or something like that. That could be sort of another, another sign. I think when you start to see change in moods, you know, so you start seeing someone who used to be a lot more open or a lot more outgoing, um, maybe being a little bit more irritable or maybe a little bit more introverted. And again, introversion by itself, it's not a sign, but again, we're talking about a change in baseline. And so, you know, you might start to sort of notice that and say, okay, by the time you get to someone either not showing up at work or their performance at work really being impacted, then you're looking at sort of, to me, the later stages of burnout. Then that, to me, that means that someone has sort of been mm-hmm. probably exhibiting signs before them, but by the time they get to actually not showing up for work or not wanting to go to work and really their performance, and now you're, you're looking at a poor performance view or something like that, that's to me sort of more the latter stages of the burnout. So Rochelle, let's talk a bit about some of the causes of burnout. I know I've reviewed some of your uh, materials. You've done some writing and speaking about this, and there's a bunch of reasons why people might begin to feel burnt out. And I, I'm just going to sort of start with some of them that you have talked about in the past, and maybe we can talk about these causes and also how employers and employees can recognize ways to deal with these factors differently to improve it for them. So one of them that you talk about is lack of support. So what does this look like typically in a workplace when somebody is experiencing that? Yeah, to me, lack of support means like I'm having an issue and I'm not sure who to turn to, right? 
and that can be anything from I have a manager or I have a supervisor, but we don't really have dedicated time to sit and talk. Or we do have time, but either it gets canceled or it gets moved, but we haven't had a really consistent meeting time or consistent relationship to kind of just chat through things. So often that might leave employees feel, feeling like I'm not sure who to turn to for help or questions about how to do my job, right? Who can I turn to and ask these questions? You know, I'm not sure if I'm doing a good job or not. I'm not really getting any feedback. Mm. You know, sometimes people will internalize that. And so then they will just sort of take on more themselves and sort of say, I've got to figure this out for myself. And therefore that means I'm just going to take on more. And so it just, it's like a missed opportunity to sort of reach out and connect to someone and, and ask them for more help or more support. If you're the employee, why do you think you're having difficulty reaching out and asking for help and what can be done to help make sure that that happens? Yeah, I think, you know, there are a few reasons why employees might not ask for help, right? One, it's sort of, for them, it may be a sign of weakness or maybe mm-hmm. they're concerned that people think, I don't know what I'm doing or I'm not doing my job well. And I think especially kind of like how new someone is to a company is also another factor here that could be related. You know, I'm new to the job. I want to to put on a good front. I want to put on a good face. I want to make sure that, you know, they've hired the right person. I want them to feel comfortable. And so sometimes we sacrifice our needs to make those around us feel more comfortable, even though we're uncertain about where to go and what to do. Mm -hmm. And so I, you know, if you're an employer or a manager, I really think, creating that space and just sort of that connection so that, you know, people know that they know who to reach out to if they have questions, they know when they can reach out to you and just really kind of making that known, clear and consistent, I think is key to sort of help alleviate some of that. Yeah. And, you know, when I've worked with patients before who have talked about exactly what you've said, that they have some fear about asking for help or looking weak or looking stupid or whatever, And I've worked with them and just encouraged them to talk with their supervisors or boss, which was very scary for them. I can't think of a time where that didn't go well, or at least, I mean, they may not have gotten the help they wanted or needed, but they were never treated like you're stupid or bad for coming and asking for help. So I think that that fear is often probably unwarranted. And I'm guessing, and you tell me, I think that employers typically want their employees to come and ask for help or get more guidance if they're lost because it's unproductive time if they are floundering around and don't know what they're doing. Absolutely. I would say employers, you know, one of the things that they're obviously looking at is unproductivity, right? And unproductivity looks very different and can mean many different things, right? From taking longer to take care of tasks to, again, folks, you know, missing deadlines or, you know, days off, all of those things, right, can fall under unproductivity or underproducing for that matter. And the thing that I tell, I try to tell people all the time too, is even if you reach out, let's say to your boss, and you find that their response is not as helpful as you as you thought, sometimes they could also lead you in the direction of someone else that can provide mm-hmm. a little bit more clarity too. So I think it's also just you know, I know it can be scary sometimes of putting yourself out there to sort of say, hey, uh, you know, I need help with this. And in my experience, it's been sort of like, hey, I may not be able to answer this, but I think so-and-so, or I'm going to put you in contact with so-and-so and have you guys work a little bit more closely together. And so it's usually just sort of, I think, opening the door to that conversation. And, you know, I'm really big on the conversations that happen between team members, as well as between managers and their employees, because they think 
that's where the change can happen. That's where connection happens. And I think that's where we can really start to address some of these signs and symptoms of burnout. Sure. So tell me about poor work-life boundaries. What's going on with that? Yeah, I mean, talk about, I think this has become more prevalent um, as we look back over the last couple of years, right? With um, COVID and more people working remotely from home, this this idea that we can't really shut off, right? Mm. We can't really turn off, you know? So you have some folks who are waking up and the first thing they're doing is looking at their phone or looking, checking their emails, right? So it's very easy to do. And, and, and I can say that I'm guilty of doing this, right? You kind of look <laughs> and say, anything emergent happened overnight, let me just shoot this quick email, you know, or yeah. I'm going to just five minutes, you know, but five minutes here, five minutes there. It's just sort of now, like, instead of maybe a typical eight hour day, or maybe 12 hour day, depending if you're working shifts, just stretches out, you know, an hour here, an hour there. And then before you know it, you've stretched your day, you know, sometimes from eight to 10 hours or 10 to 12 or 12 to 14. And it's just less downtime. There's just less time for your body and your mind to recuperate and to disconnect, which we all need in order to sort of come back refreshed. And I think when we do that, like when we respond, right, at different times, or when we just spend more time um, at work than we than we intend to, it also signals to other people that we're available more often than we'd like to be. Mm-hmm. And so then that sets up a, another cycle, another pattern of, of, you know, just again, extended hours. And, you know, and I think the other thing about the poor work-life boundaries is that then we start getting into habits. Um, so now in the morning, instead of doing a, 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 a routine that might include whatever, um, you know, your personal hygiene, maybe working out, maybe it's meditation, maybe it's yoga, maybe it's a walk, maybe it's breakfast. It's now grabbing something like electronic device first thing in the morning. And so now we've taken up the other habits that are actually helpful for our mental health, that are actually helpful for our sense of well-being. We've now cut down on those habits and we've just exchanged it for either more screen time, more opportunity for stress, more opportunity for anxiety. And so then that leads to even more imbalance. Right. And I can really see during this period where people are working more remotely, how there's a bigger blurring of the boundaries because you're literally working from home and living at home. And so, you know, at least when you're going to a works a workplace, then you, you have sort of a mental boundary between where you work and where you live. So I could see how that could add to some complications around that. So what do you typically tell people around managing and making sure that they're work life boundaries are respected? You know, I think in general, for some people, we have a hard time asserting boundaries, right? It mm-hmm. just feels like, oh, but one of the things I've seen people do that I really enjoy is like when they put their schedules up, right? They delineate what's non-working hours versus what's working hours, right? And so that's a clear way to delineate to someone that's looking at your schedule, like, hey, please don't schedule a meeting before 9 a.m. Eastern time. I'm not working. or after 6 p.m. or whatever the hours may be. So I think that's key. I think particularly for those who are working remote, it's almost having to create artificial starts and stops, right? So before when you had a commute, like you said, there was a natural sort of period where we either were kind of getting prepared to transition to go to work um, when we're commuting in and on the way home is sort of a transition from leaving work and then kind of getting ready for our home life. And so what I'll tell people is even 
you have to just walk, let's say, I, you know, we live in New York. Let's just say you have to walk to the, the subway station. Even if you just go outside, walk there and walk back. It's just still a signal to your body and to your mind that, hey, mm-hmm. I am doing something different. I'm transitioning from being at home and home life to like now I'm focused on work. So that's one of the things that I have people do is in the morning, I'll have them just walk outside, walk around the block, mm. two minutes, five minutes, however long you want to take. And then try and do that in the evening as well. And again, it's just a cue, both physically and mentally, that it's like, it's time to like sort of shut that off. You know, a lot of times we'll have people turn off their computers, put it in a different room. So they're not tempted to just keep checking um, every few minutes or every hour on the hour that, that they've missed something. So physically removing things from your space. But I think routines are, are important here. So as much as you can, sticking to a morning routine um, is really important. And whatever evening routine that you can have is another sort of delineation to sort of, again, help make it clear from when you're working and when you're not, especially when you are working and living from the same space. It takes, I think, some physical separation, at least to just sort of, hey, say, okay, we're, we're, we're moving. I'm moving from work and I'm moving more to, to home life. So unmanageable workloads. So this one on the surface sort of seems like one of the more obvious things that could lead to burnout. Obviously, somebody's got way too much work to do and is feeling just stressed out and frustrated about that. What can you tell us about unmanageable workloads and how people might take a look at this in their job situation to help them manage burnout better? Yeah, I think this is one that, you know, I've given this talk a few times and I've seen more than a few times. And this is the one where people are like, well, I have no control over this, right? This is the workplace culture. This is where I go back to sort of saying, you know, is this something that has been communicated to a manager? Like when we feel like an unrealistic or unmanageable workload has been given to us. And so a lot of times I like to sort of dig in a little bit deeper um, to understand what makes something feel unmanageable. Is it unmanageable because you don't know what the expectation is? Is it unclear expectations? Is it unrealistic expectations? Is it unmanageable because you're the only person or the only resource dedicated to this? Is the timeline unmanageable? Is it that you feel like you don't have the expertise? Like what is it that makes it unmanageable? So I think kind of digging it a little bit deeper to understand what makes it unmanageable. And then that can help come up with a plan, an action plan to sort of address some of this feeling of unmanageable workload. Yeah. So again, it sounds like communication with an employer or supervisor is important because that person may not realize that the employee is feeling that they're having a hard time managing stuff. And I think like, again, like as I was mentioning earlier, it's often a fear that if somebody says, I'm having a hard time with my workload managing it, that their supervisor is going to say, well, then you can just leave the company and we'll find somebody who can. Like that, I think is probably pretty unrealistic most of the time that that's what's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm very specific when I talk to employers um, before giving a talk about burnout, just to understand what the cultural expectation and cultural norms, because believe it or not, I mean, obviously there are some companies where there is an expectation for efficiency for longer hours, right? But that's that's the understood expectation. But I think this idea that companies want to 
let people go only to have to spend time and money hiring someone, onboarding someone, training them, making sure they get up to speed. There's a lot of steps that go from, you know, when you're switching employees, that just takes a lot of time and money and effort. And most employers do not want to have that experience. They want to, re- they want to hold on to their employees that they've invested time, um, money. And, and, you know, even if you felt like, let's just say your employer didn't have your well-being and interest, I think that really good employers care about the well-being of their employees as well. But from a financial standpoint, the, the time and money that it takes to hire to find talent, attract talent, retain talent, and train them, it's not in their best interest to just sure. let people go without having that conversation, without understanding what, what's happening at, sure. um, at the employee level. So let's talk about lack of a win. Why is it that people need to have a, a win? Describe to us what a win is in the workplace and why people need that to feel like they need to keep going. Yeah, a win is just an opportunity, I think, to pat ourselves on the back. Like we've worked towards something, we're working towards a goal and just celebrating the accomplishments along the way. You know, and I think one of the things that we tend to do is we only celebrate big wins, like if we've reached the big goal. But I think celebrating the small steps along the way, I think A, makes people feel appreciated, makes them feel validated makes them feel like they're contributing towards something. So a sense of purpose. And I think, you know, just makes people feel good and makes them feel good about moving to the next step. And so the wins are a good reminder of the progress that we're making, where sometimes, especially if we feel like we're working and we feel less effective or, we, or, we're, or we're becoming a little bit more cynical, the wins are a reminder of, of the good that we're doing. Um, and it's mm-hmm. just, a, it's, an, it's an ability or time for team members to really just, celebrate the work that they're doing together as well. And that's why I think wins are important. Yeah. So it's sort of clear how employers could celebrate wins, kind of keep Mm -hmm. an eye out for what employees are doing and reward them, make them feel good about things that they're doing well and they're doing right. How about from the individual's point of view, how can they celebrate their own wins and feel better about themselves rather than just feeling like, you know, nothing I'm doing, I'm, am I doing well and it matters at all? Like, how can yeah. people be more mindful of that, do you think? I do think creating a culture of celebrating wins helps individuals who have a hard time doing it. Mm. And so, you know, I think what we do at Eden, for example, is you're able to celebrate your peer or your team member. So uh-huh. it's not even just, an, you know, your manager. It shouldn't be. It should also be team members sort of saying, hey, thank you for that or or I noticed you did this. This is great, you know? And so I think for people who have a hard time kind of keeping track of that, once you are in the culture that does that and celebrates that, I think it makes it easier um, to notice. And I think for some people, we're much better at recognizing other people's wins, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And so that is like a easy, it's an easier first step for many people than it is recognizing their own. But I think it helps. I think it helps when you start looking for other people's wins that you're able to then reflect on your own. I also think, you know, we don't do a good job um, in terms of like writing down what our goals have been or what we've been working mm-hmm. on, right? And so it's very hard or very easy, I should say, excuse me, to, to not be able to reflect and kind of see the progress that we've made along the way. You know what I mean? 
and I'm guilty of that too, you know, something that seems so stressful to me maybe three months ago and I look back and I'm like, oh, now I know what to do or now I've been in this situation and, and we've gotten there and I've, you know, figured it out. So I think writing down small goals for yourself and then when you reach them, kind of being able to reflect on them and say like, got there, you know, but I do think the culture of celebrating wins is a big one. And I think it's pretty important to sort of help support individuals in, in that effort. Let's talk about unclear job responsibilities. So why is this important for, you know, employee mental health and burnout issues? And what can we do about that to make that better? Yeah, I mean, I hear this a lot. And I think it's, you know, it's, it's this idea of moving targets. And I've kind of talked a little, we talked a little bit about it before, right? So lack of clear roles and responsibilities could go back to unrealistic expectations, could also contribute to unmanageable workloads. You know, we want people to be team players. We say that all the time, but we also don't want people to take on more than they have to, right? And so when you have a clearer sense of what your role is, it also leads to a clearer sense of how you are contributing to the goal of whatever, your individual goals, the company's goals, um, and whatever is the, the work that you're doing. And I think when it's not clear, it becomes really easy to say, well, whatever I'm doing is not contributing anyways, or like whatever I'm doing is not really helpful anyways. So no one's really gonna notice if I don't do X, Y, or Z. But I think when you have a, le- a clearer sense of, of role and a clearer sense of purpose, then I think that helps to drive people towards their goals. All of these things kind of come into one, you know, where if you don't know what it is that you're working towards, you just, people get, def- they feel defeated. They mm-hmm. feel like um, they feel uh, lack of agency. And it just sort of leads to, I think, less engagement over time and just sort of feeling stressed out, like they're not again, contributing or achieving. Um, they're not sure what they are achieving or they just feel like they're, it's just unrealistic and they're doing way more, but they're not doing anything well. Um, and so I think people want to feel good about the job that they're doing. They want to know that they're doing it well. And I think part of that is making sure that we've defined it early as much as we can uh, early on. So we're setting them up for success. Yeah. So Rochelle, I think one thing that probably happens a lot in many people's jobs is that they get hired on to do something very specific and the job responsibilities are pretty clear. And then inevitably what happens? Some people leave the company and you're asked to step in to help out here or there, or there's some emergency or crisis that you step in to fill the shoes to try to help with that. And before you know it, your job has mushroomed into all sorts of different sometimes unrelated things. And I think that can possibly be another place where job responsibilities can become unclear as the employee sort of evolves there in the workplace. And so, and I hear this all the time that, Mm -hmm. you know, my patients like get into that kind of situation and become really frustrated with it. So how would you look at that type of dynamic in the workplace when that occurs? Yeah. So you, and I agree here, this happens quite often. And I would say there are I think there are more than a couple of things happening there. So by definition, right, whenever someone leaves or there is a big change, that undoubtedly adds more stress to the ecosystem or to yeah. the team or to, right? And so that in and of itself is going to be particular a, a potential stressor for burnout because now you're asking 
less people to do the same amount of work. And I think people are pretty adaptable and resilient to know that if this is something that's short term, they can work around. I think what happens is we create a new study state or what we think is a study state. And so it just becomes more continuous and chronic that this person is doing multiple roles or doing different roles. And there isn't really a plan in place or a plan in place that's communicated to the employee about what is going to be the short term of this and what is the long term um, without sort of addressing like, how are we going to address the changes and the stressors that we've introduced to this work situation? And so that's what leads to the burnout. You know, I think people can say, look, if you tell me that over the next month or two, until we can get someone else in this role, I'm going to have to take more on. Most people are able to, to sort of manage that. But if you say, hey, I'm going to ask you to take this on and, and we have nothing, we have no plan in sight. That's where the real issue lies. And that's sort of the, the start of a potential situation that could lead to someone getting burnt out. How about changes in life events? Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because we talk about burnout being a work related event, but obviously, you know, our lives are not separated between work and home. I'm laughing because I don't know if you've seen the show Severance uh, <laughs> on Apple TV, where yeah. you're able to separate your, your, your work life from your home life. We don't <laughs> have that as, as, a, <laughs> as, as an ability, but, but yeah, obviously if there are stressful things out, happening outside of the home, right, the more stressful events, it impacts our, who we are as a person and what we bring to the workplace. And so, you know, obviously, so right, so the pandemic was something we all went through. That was clearly a major life stressor, but it yeah. had an impact on us at work, right? But any major life stressor is going to have an impact on our ability to cope and our, and, and our stress levels. And, you know, I, I might sound like a broken record, but I think particularly the life stressors and the things that are happening outside of the workplace, depending on the relationships that employees have um, with their managers, are you able to bring some of that there and just let them know? And again, it's not so much about going into the nitty gritty details, but it's about being in a space comfortable enough to say, hey, there are some major things that are happening in my personal life that, you know, I'm doing my best to address, but they're affecting me. And, mm -hmm. you know, and I need, I need you to know that, or I need you to understand that because by definition, it's just going to have an impact on the levels of stress that I'm under and how I'm able to be able to do my, my job most effectively. Let's talk a little bit about one major life event, and that is having a baby. Yeah. So this comes up a lot. I have had many patients who have had babies. And in this particular case, I'm referring mostly to women. Obviously, they're the ones having the babies physically. But mm -hmm. I noticed like the, um, the psychological and emotional effects of feeling guilty about going back to work feeling overwhelmed and then feeling exhausted coming home and feeling guilty, not having the time and energy to spend with their baby the way they'd like to and feeling badly about that. And I've noticed that that can really bring up a lot of stress around feelings about work. I'm wondering if you could say a few words about that phenomenon and how you counsel people about that. So I'm big on telling people they are not alone. Um, mm. especially women who have had children postpartum, 
you know, and I can relate to the personal experience I had. I have two kids, two children, um, and sort of going through that experience and understanding that, A, the two experiences were not necessarily the same from each other, right? Mm -hmm. So having two experiences. And so not every woman is going to have the same experience, but I think there's a power in understanding that they are not alone in that experience. Because a lot of times when you're in it, you think you're the only one who's struggling with this. You're the only one who's having a hard time managing managing this. And that's certainly not the case. So I think self-compassion is something that I try to really talk to new moms about, um, or just moms in general, in particular, since that's what we're talking about. But to give ourselves some grace that A, we're, we're doing the best that we can. You know, there aren't many more life-changing events than, than bringing another human being into this world. Yeah. Um, and so there are, there is going to be a period of, of, of adapting, right? So you're talking about changing in sleep patterns, yeah. uh, you know, you know, just being physically tired, right? The, the physical, like carrying the physical, taking care of someone, those are, that's energy that that's required. And I think we don't really think about that in the day to day. But I think having some self-compassion to know that um, women are not alone and to, I guess, acknowledge that this is a normal period of adjustment and change. I still have those moments where I struggle between the two. The, the days I feel like the, the most difficult are the days where you feel like you're not doing either role particularly well. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. And you just sort of feel like oh, you're devoting so much time to work, maybe, and you're like still not doing that well, and you're guilty about uh, not doing some of the stuff at home. And then you're at home and you're focused on that, and you're still thinking about work and 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 so your attention is, is split. And so mm-hmm. that's probably the days that are, are, are the hardest is just because you feel like you're not doing well either way. And so that's where, I, you know, I really, I go back to this idea of self-compassion and giving ourselves grace that we are doing a much better job than we typically give ourselves credit for. But I think there's power in acknowledging that it can be a difficult time and it could be a real period of adjustment. I guess my personal beliefs are that you know, we have this idea that we need to do everything all at once, all yeah. alone, yeah. but that it does take a village and that it does take more support to be able to navigate these systems more effectively. Um, and so we go back to this idea of support, you know, and, and communicating. And so I think all of that ties together. It's sort of like, where are your support? Where can you get the support and how can you communicate those, those needs? Yeah, I really like what you said about the self-compassion. I think that's so important. I've had so many women in my practice who have just been just amazing dynamos at work. And then they have their child and then they go back to work. And like you said, they're exhausted because they've been up feeding and not getting any sleep. And they're cloudy headed at work, you know, compared to the way they were. And they just beat up on themselves for feeling like they're just totally ineffective employees at that point. And of course, that's not true. They're still doing a fine job. They just may not Mm be at 100%. But it's so easy to beat up on oneself when your comparison is perfection, right? And you're not quite at perfection compared to your, your belief about that. So I think that's a very important point to make. You know, we could do a whole nother talk about perfection. (laughs) But yes, I agree. Yes, of course. You mentioned this idea of not having a career path. How does that play into feelings of burnout for a person? 
when people talk about career path, they're talking about growth, right? And so like a trajectory. So if I'm working here, what will it look like two years from now? Or what will it look like five years from now? Where will I be? And I think when there doesn't seem to be as clear a path in terms of like roles to move up in or opportunities to learn or opportunities to grow, it feels like stagnation. And mm-hmm. it feels like, almost like it's just the wheel turning over and over again, but we're not really getting anywhere. And so I think it's those feelings and those thoughts that, that can contribute to burnout because you're just sort of, what am I bringing to the table? What is my purpose here? How am I growing or how am I helping my employer or my company grow? And so then it, it sort of leads to the cynicism, I think, um, sort of this reduced effectiveness at work. And those are some of the signs and symptoms of burnout. Mm-hmm. So what I'm hearing you say, and I, I believe this is true, is that existentially, people have a need to feel like they're growing, that they're making a difference, that they're moving in a direction, that they're improving themselves and they're contributing to something. And when somebody's not doing that, they're feeling they're stagnating. They're just a cog in the wheel that's doing the same thing over and over again and not going anywhere. That doesn't feel good for people. It doesn't. And I think you totally summed it up correctly. And I think that's true. I think people want to feel like they're moving in a direction and they want to feel like they're, they're learning something, they're improving or that they're growing. And that doesn't mean like everybody wants to be a manager or everybody wants to be a director or everybody wants to be right. But they want to feel like they are growing in a way that they are learning something, that they're changing, that it's not the same thing. And they look back at five years and every day is just the same day. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? That's what I think that means. Yeah, for sure. So Rochelle, if this was a year or two ago, I would probably be asking you a very different question about COVID. Now, for the most part, it looks like we're seeing COVID in the rearview mirror. People are starting to go back to work, but we're still in a sort of weird transition phase, right? I mean, we have this idea that COVID is still out there still an important and serious thing that we need to take seriously. And people have their various different feelings about COVID and comfort levels around it. It's kind of a weird time right now. It's weird in a different way than it was two years ago when it was surreal and like a sci-fi movie weird. But now we're just in, a, in, a, in an odd phase. And I'm wondering if you could just say a few words about what you're seeing out there and how people can have some awareness of this phase we're in regarding the pandemic and um, what's important about that for employees and employers. Yeah, I I would agree. We're sort of like in this weird, I don't know if in between phase. I mean, I think what COVID has has taught us is that things are always changing and that, you know, we're always having, we're we're just going to be continuously adapting to COVID. I hope that we're fully in the phase you know, where we've moved out of completely halting our lives and, and changing things, you know, dramatically. And I think that we generally are, because we're, where we're in such a weird phase, there's still opportunities where, where I call for awkwardness, where we're just not quite sure what to do. And I think, you know, in terms of going back to work, the conversations there, I still see some of the same issues, you know, in a sense of like, I've been remote for so long, I've forgotten what it's like to be in person, yeah. or I'm not quite sure what, what's the norms? Like, what are the boundaries? What are the expectations? Are we eating together in person? Are we not? 
am I shaking your hand? Am I going in for a hug? Right. And there's all these things of like, I just, people are doing this dance. I'm just not quite sure like what to do. So a lot of the work that I do when, when employers are thinking about going back into the office is I think a kind of warming yourself back up to it is, is always a good idea. I think to communicating clear expectations about how many hours you're going to be back in the office, what's the protocol that you've, you've done to sort of ensure that people's safety is there, right? I think those are the two things that people really want to know. And then I think there's something to be said about cultivating or creating smaller group opportunities so that it doesn't feel so wide open where someone's walking into an office and they're like, oh, I've never met anybody in person. Maybe it's creating like a buddy or a mentor or someone that they can connect with so that on their first day back, it's not just like, I'm not sure who to talk to, right? And then I think what I tell folks is like, I like to joke. And so I'll go into the office and say, hey, I'm a hugger. I'm not sure if you are, you know, like, and I just kind of put it out there, right? And I kind of smile, we kind of laugh. And I'll just say, hey, are we doing this dance? Are we, are we going in for a handshake or we're not? Or we're just, you know, we're we doing elbows or we're just saying hi, you know? Mm-hmm. But I kind of just put it out there, right? And I just kind of, let the words lead so it doesn't feel as awkward. And then I think the more that we are able to do that, uh, the less awkward it becomes. It's just navigating uncertainty, which I think we've we've done a pretty good job over the past couple of years, uh, probably better than we were two years ago. Yeah. But navigating uncertainty, I think we've learned a lot of skills to help us do that. And I think, you know, we're able to look back and reflect on all the things that we have learned which is important, right? Which is what we've talked about. Like how you look back and say, okay, these are the wins that we've had. You know, there's certainly been some losses, but this, these are some of the wins that we can take away from this whole experience, whether it's new habits, whether it's new appreciation for relationships, whether it's appreciation for the commutes that we've missed, but you know, how do we take the experiences that we've learned, that we've had to learn from and kind of use, you know, going forward. That's what I, I try to tell people all the time about COVID and how I look at COVID and, and where we are now and, and where we've been in the last couple of years. Rochelle, this has been a super interesting and informative conversation with you about workplace burnout and these topics. I've really enjoyed hearing your thoughts on them. I'm wondering if you have any final thoughts that you want to leave with us about this topic. I, first of all, it's, it's, it was a pleasure being here and thank you so much for the invitation. You know, I'm really big on on the relationships, you know, I think between coworkers, between managers, between employers, employees. And I think that's the key to just, I think, A, communicating and B, affecting change in the workplace. It starts with relationships. Yeah, that's the, that's true for just about everything we do, right? And the mental health field. That's right. Well, Rochelle, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure meeting with you. Same here. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you for listening to Mind Tricks Radio. I hope you have enjoyed the program. For more information about Mind Tricks, you can go to my website, www.waikikihealth.com. Be sure to subscribe to Mind Tricks on your preferred podcasting host to be notified of new episodes of Mind Tricks. Please take some time to give Mind Tricks a good rating and review wherever you are listening. It really helps get the word out to new listeners. And please like and share Mind Tricks posts on Twitter and Facebook by following your host, Dr. Aaron Kaplan.